So during Lent, during the weeks that lead up to Easter, we are hearing the stories that happen on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. If you are interested in what makes up a disciple and the qualities of a disciple, this is a good place to look in this journey. In these passages, we find things that the disciples hold dear, and we find that those things that the disciples hold dear are often in contrast to what the Pharisees hold dear. So Luke tells us that the Pharisees are lovers of money and that they ridicule Jesus. And then immediately following those words, we get this parable. And this is a parable that Jesus directs to the Pharisees. So would you overhear this parable with me? It's in Luke chapter 16, and I'm going to begin with verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and he was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. He said to them, then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So for spring break, we drove, me, um, well, I should say Keith drove, I rode. We drove, Keith drove us 13 hours to Taos, New Mexico, where we skied for several days during spring break. And one late afternoon, I was sitting in this restaurant in Taos with a bowl of green chili stew in front of me, and I was looking out this big picture window at the snow that was on the mountain and the snow that was on the pine trees, and it was absolutely breathtaking, just beautiful. The guy who was sitting next to me held up his margarita in one hand, and with the other hand, he motioned toward me with a fist, and he said, blessed and favored, dude. We are blessed and favored. Before I knew what I was doing, I did that fist bump thing, and immediately I knew it was like a spiritual hashtag, because I was reading this parable, and I thought, 
Uh-oh. I hope God doesn't look at the tweets that are coming directly from my life this week. In light of this parable, I don't want to call myself blessed and favored. Jesus was not the first to tell this story about how wealth and poverty might be reversed. It's a well-known folk tale in the ancient world. There were many similar tales. Two men in this life, one has wealth, the other has nothing. And after death, the one with nothing is comforted, and the one who has wealth sits in agony. In Jesus' version of this story, the wealthy man is finely dressed. It says that he is dressed in purple and fine linen. So this is a sign that his wealth is overdone. The word used to describe his diet is feast. So the way that most eat on special occasions, this man eats that way for every meal. The poor man, on the other hand, Lazarus, Lazarus is hungry and he's covered in sores and dogs come to lick his sores. And I want you to know that this is not a sentimental touch. Dogs aren't enduring creatures in the first century as they are now. Dogs are unclean in the ancient world. So this is another story in the Gospel of Luke where we are looking at an outcast. Like the man who is beaten up on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem that Matt taught about last week. We get another picture, another teaching in the Gospel of Luke about someone who is an untouchable. And this text tells us that there is a great divide between the rich man and the poor man. About the reversal, Abraham says to the wealthy man in verse 26, as he sits in Hades, let's look at verse 26. Father Abraham says this, Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed. So that those who might want to pass from here to you can't do so. And no one can cross from there to us. Well, I want to suggest to you that this divide, this chasm that the wealthy man sees when he sits in Hades, this divide has been there all along. It didn't just pop up when they died, but it has been there throughout the whole story. There is a huge difference between the earthly lives of the two men in this parable. So the puzzle to me then becomes, why is the divide such a surprise to the wealthy man when he sits in the afterlife? Well, maybe he just couldn't see it. I mean, that's a possibility, right? It seems to me in this parable that Lazarus, is well aware of the rich man in his home. The parable says that Lazarus would be happy to eat scraps from his table, so he knows of the wealthy man's table, but there is no evidence that the wealthy man notices Lazarus, who sits at his gate. What if the wealthy man is just so focused on his own life, his own stuff, that he never notices the man who is just outside of his gate? I can see how this could happen. Because I often get so inwardly focused and caught up in just maintaining my day-to-day life that I don't see those who live just outside of the perimeter of my life. 
I suspect I often miss people that need my help because my focus is not on them, but my focus is on me. So the chasm is there. The divide is there. I just put up a barrier and I keep myself enclosed. I stay on the inside, on my side of the divide, and then I can't see the chasm. Well, there's nothing like a 13-hour drive (laughs) from San Antonio to New Mexico to give you a little perspective. On our drive, I saw many trailer parks, and I didn't see one gated subdivision. The small group that traveled from our church to Burundi at the beginning of 2017, uh, which is either the poorest country in the world or the second poorest country in the entire world, depending on who you ask. Well, that group that traveled from our church to Burundi, they gave a report a couple of weeks ago, one Sunday evening, and one of the women who went for the first time from San Antonio to Burundi said this about the poverty in Burundi. She said, the best way that I can describe it to you is to say, you just have to see it. You have to see it to understand it. We think that we know poverty, but we don't. You have to go there to comprehend it. Well, it's also a possibility. It's a possibility that the wealthy man does see Lazarus. He does, in fact, see him. But he just chooses to maintain his distance. He sees him and he steps around him because he believes that the order of things is the right order of things. So this would have more than likely been the view of the Pharisees, that wealth was a sign of blessedness. So this then becomes a you-get-what-you-deserve theology. Lazarus, who sits at the wealthy man's gate, well, the wealthy man sees him, but he's getting what he deserves. And this is a theology that you could hang upon one particular chapter in the Bible, Deuteronomy 28, that says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and fully follow his commands, you will be blessed in the city and the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land blessed. The young of your livestock blessed. But when you hang an entire theology on one particular passage in the Bible, well, that's what we call today proof texting. And proof texting is where you justify a position that you have without regard to the larger passage, without regard to the entire Bible. So you just lift out a few verses of the scripture and you say, these few verses of scripture tell me who God is. When we do this, when we do this thing called proof texting, it is more an image of who we are than it is an accurate picture of who God is. Jesus is going after this particular version of proof texting. He's going after this particular interpretation of wealth as blessedness. And it was the theology of the Pharisees. And because Jesus goes after it, not only in this parable, but in other places in the Gospels, it is somewhat of a surprise to me that modern versions are still heard in church today. N.T. Wright says that we as Christians have the ability to notice a Lazarus in our own lives and to keep our distance from that particular person by saying things like, well, it's his own fault. 
There are agencies that can help him. He should get a job. If I give her money, she won't spend it on the right things. Stay away from them. They might be violent. This kind of thinking does make our lives less complicated, but I believe that it leads us to miss out on a great deal that God has in store for us in this world. It's like driving up to the Grand Canyon and from your window in the passenger seat saying, huh, the elevation out there is different from up here, but isn't my view spectacular? Jesus calls his disciples to be canyon crossers, to get out there and cross that divide, cross that crevice, to tear down the barriers that keep you from seeing the divide, to drive up to it, to get out of the car, to put your hiking shoes on and your big boy pants on and walk across. The kingdom of heaven is breaking into the world as we know it. And the reversal that happens in the afterlife in this parable, well, it's already happening for those who follow Christ. And we are the means for bringing the kingdom, for pulling the kingdom into the world even further. In the classic folk story that we find versions of in the ancient world, permission is given to send a messenger back to the living. So the man that sits in agony is, in fact, given permission to send someone back to warn the people that still are, in, are, are, hit, are still on earth possessing a lot of material wealth. But in Jesus' version, this is exactly the place where things get a little tricky. No one returns to warn the man's five brothers Because what Father Abraham says is they should know. They should know what is to come. He says that they've already been warned. They've been warned by Moses. They've been warned by the prophets. And this is exactly where in the parable the Pharisees would have felt a strong sting. Jesus is making it clear to them that they are the wealthy man. They are the wealthy man and his brothers. They are misinterpreting the truth of the faith that Jesus has come to fulfill. The law of Moses specifically stated that the harvest was to be shared with the poor and the transient. The 19th chapter of Leviticus gives specific instructions on how to harvest, how to bring in the crops, so that some is left For those who have nothing. And in Deuteronomy 15, we find instructions not to be hard-hearted or tight-fisted with the poor, but instead to be open-handed. And then in the prophets, in Isaiah, we find words like this. The Lord says in Isaiah 56, I choose to break every yoke that binds, so share your bread with the hungry. Provide for the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked, clothe them. Then the light will break forth like a dawn, and your healing, your healing will quickly appear. Did you know that this parable 
This parable is the only of Jesus' parables where a proper name is used. Think about all the parables that you know, all the stories that you've heard from Jesus' mouth. There's a parable, there's a story about a father and two sons. There's a parable about a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. There's one about a man who is throwing a great banquet and his servants. There's a parable about a rich man and a shrewd manager. There's one about a woman who's lost a coin. There's a parable about a shepherd who has lost a sheep. In all of those parables, there is not one person that is given a proper name. No one is named. I think it's because it makes it easier for those who heard Jesus' stories to put themselves in the stories. So what is it? What is it with a proper name in this particular parable? Who is this Lazarus? Why is he named? Is this the guy who in John's gospel is raised from the dead, who is the brother of Mary and Martha? Some say yes. I say probably not. The most helpful clue to me is in the meaning of the name Lazarus. Lazarus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Eleazar. And Eleazar literally means, my God helps. My God helps. In the Hebrew Bible, Eleazar is the second son of Moses. Moses is mentioned in this parable. And in Genesis, my God helps, Eleazar is the name that's attributed to Abraham's senior servant that goes to find a bride for Isaac. So he's the one that seizes the opportunity. He seizes the chance for God's covenantal promise to be fulfilled, for Abraham to have heirs. So when I hear the name Lazarus, I see opportunity. I hear that around this guy, there is potential for one of God's promises to be fulfilled. And I think those Pharisees, those Pharisees are absolutely crazy. They're absolutely crazy just to see him and step around him. Lazarus is someone that God has aligned God's self with. My God helps. He is, in fact, a spiritual gold mine. There is a woman named Betty who lives in Houston, whom I greatly admire. She's a retired teacher, just recently retired from teaching in the public schools, and her husband is retiring from ministry this year. For the last couple of years, a part of their ministry has been to those who are recovering from drug and alcohol addictions uh, in and around the downtown part of Houston. They have a group that meets regularly for worship in their home, and they live in one of those multi-story walk-ups. So they use the bottom floor of their house to offer shelter to someone who's in need of a place to stay for a couple of, a couple of nights who's a part of their group. When she was asked about her last couple of years in ministry, she said this, They have been the most difficult in all our years in ministry. And then she paused. And after her pause, she said, but they've also been the best. They've been the best years of our ministry. I want you to know 
that there are many different versions, many different faces of the one who is called My God Helps. Lazarus is not just some Greek guy from the first century, (laughs) but Lazarus comes with many different faces, many different sizes, many different cultures. And while I don't want you to ever ignore any person in need that crosses your path, I wouldn't want to advise you of that. I want you to see in this parable that Lazarus and the wealthy man have a long time association. This parable is a call to us to see the person who sits at our gate, to extend what we have to them so that they then in turn can extend what they have to us. My God helps. Your my God helps. Well, he or she may be the very place, the very way that God in turn helps you. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, you are the source of all our help. You want more for us than entitlement or material satisfaction. And we, in turn, want the big things of your world. We want rich relationships, and we want opportunities to see your miraculous ways at work as your kingdom creeps in. May we be known to Yeshua, not as lovers of money, but as those who love your children. Your kingdom come, your will be done on our watch. Amen.